Jimmy, first and foremost, thank you so much for your time today. It's fair to say that we are in economic conditions that we haven't seen for a long time against a fairly daunting inflationary backdrop. A lot of people are looking for a hiding place. And today we're going to talk about healthcare. What role at the moment, just to take a step back, what role do you see pharma and healthcare kind of playing in a broader portfolio right now? Um, do you think it's it's the place to be? And if so, why? Yeah, thank you. Um, so healthcare traditionally is a defensive sector. And in times of volatility, such as we have now, then healthcare has got a very big uh, role to play. If you look at sector performance year to date, then healthcare has done really well, not as well as energy, but certainly has provided that defensiveness that we look for. I have to say, though, that healthcare is a pretty big sector. So within healthcare, you've got many different subsectors. Um, pharmaceuticals, which tend to be large capitalization stocks, um, they definitely provide you the defensive qualities that um, one looks for. Then we also tend to have more cyclical or economically sensitive subsectors. These are where discretionary spending is involved. Uh, a good example being a company like Smith & Nephew, where you can put off a hip or a knee replacement. Then you also have um, sort of growth-focused uh, subsectors. Um, and here I'm, I'm looking at companies that are slightly smaller but faster growing and uh, have in the past few years attracted much higher valuation multiples. Now, these have tended to perform in line with the high-flying technology stocks and so have not provided that defensive ballast. And then finally, on the highest bitter end, you've got the one-product biotech companies uh, and theirs have absolutely been taken to the cleaners um, because they are what we call long-duration assets, so gem tomorrow kind of uh, stories. And so they haven't really provided you the defensive hiding place. So when you look at the sector as a whole, yes, it does provide you that defensive characteristic you're looking for, but you've got to know where to look. And naturally, I do want to talk a little bit about the pandemic as well. So obviously not something we want to dwell on too much, but I think there's a lot to be said around around the pharma and healthcare space, especially linked to the pandemic. What did that do to valuations in the sector for a start? And on the back of that, where do you see the opportunities now? Yeah, so in, in valuations, it's, it's really interesting. Um, the healthcare, generally speaking, was one of the sectors that benefited from COVID-19. Um, firstly, from a diagnostics perspective, so many companies that had diagnostic franchises certainly benefited from the huge increase in volumes, um, and that meant that profits, you know, absolutely increased significantly during COVID-19. Secondly, um, healthcare became one of the areas where uh, a lot of focus was put um, from uh, governments, regulators, companies, etc. The health of their people was right at the forefront of everyone's minds. And so that also underpinned the sector from a demand perspective. So generally speaking, the healthcare sector did very well uh, in terms of performance. Um, we did see some of that performance coming out as COVID-19 uh, became, you know, um, less and less of a concern. Um, but that has changed since the, the year began. What we learned about 
the different companies in COVID-19 is that healthcare plays a very important role, um, not just in people's lives, but in society. So a lot of these companies did uh, pro bono work where they were not, they were helping the societies, not for profit reasons, but uh, because they could, they were in a position to do so. Uh, a good example really is AstraZeneca with its vaccine. Pre-COVID, it didn't have any vaccine business, but it put its hand up and from scratch built a vaccine business to provide to the world, really, uh, at no profit uh, for itself. Um, and these people continued to work on their regular day jobs, but also working on the vaccine uh, just for humanitarian reasons. Uh, and so we, we found that healthcare actually does play a very important role, uh, not just for investors as a stock, but also for society in terms of what they can do. And you mentioned AstraZeneca there. So when we look at some of the big kind of third party strategies in this space, some of the big the big fund houses and their healthcare strategies, a lot of the assets are concentrated into these big names, a few big names, the likes of AstraZeneca, GSK, Johnson & Johnson maybe. Is that where all the opportunity is or are there gems elsewhere in the kind of smaller and mid cap space? Uh, well, at Investec, uh, Worth in Investment, we find that there are opportunities everywhere. For many clients who are looking for um, defensive characteristics, then that tends to be in the large cap uh, pharma uh, space. Generally speaking, valuations, they are still pretty attractive relative to, to the market. So if you say the S&P 500, for example, is at 19 times price to earnings on a forward looking basis, healthcare, generally speaking, is trading below that, maybe two, maybe three tens below that. And it's offering defensive growth, it's offering mid to high single digit growth, uh, double-digit profit growth or earnings growth, uh, very healthy free cash flow yield, and in many cases, you know, a decent dividend yield as well, 3.5% to 5%, depending on where you're looking for. So in the large-cap pharma, you're certainly getting the ballast than what one is looking for. The real strength we have at Investec is the ability to make um, bespoke portfolios for our different clients because people have different risk appetites, capacity for risk, um, as well as looking for different things. You know, some people are looking to grow their wealth, some people are looking to protect it, some people are looking for an income. So how we create portfolios is our really big differentiator. In terms of um, kind of the growth uh, end of the sector, we find many opportunities, particularly in the picks and shovels kind of companies. Um, I'll mention two. One is Thermo Fisher Scientific. The other is Danaher. Both these companies provide diagnostic um, uh, um, services that you know a lot of people have become used to with COVID-19. But going beyond that, they also provide the tools that are required for life sciences research. So whether you're looking at ongoing research around COVID-19, uh, i.e. whether it's to do with new variants, whether you're looking at monkeypox for the next pandemic, whether you're looking at other breakthroughs in science, whether it's cancer treatment or Alzheimer's disease, these are the companies that are providing the life sciences research researchers with the tools and the consumables that they require. And what we found is because they made a uh, windfall profits because of COVID-19, many of these companies, Thermo, Danaher, Pfizer, they have invested heavily uh, in the next generation products. Uh, they've bought other businesses. They've increased their capacity to manufacture um, uh, diagnostics, to manufacture medicines, to manufacture vaccines. And so they are doing, they, they've been placed really, really well coming out of the pandemic and looking towards the future. 
One thing you mentioned there was the phrase, the next pandemic. So just before we move on from COVID-19, to what extent does the possibility of more pandemics play a role in your analysis, the, the idea of pandemic preparedness? Thank you. It, it, it plays a massive role uh, in terms of how we think about um, the future. At Investec, we invest thematically, which means we are looking for strong structural tailwinds. Um, and uh, one of them is really that the next pandemic is around the corner for many reasons. One is um, there is increased um, uh, mixing between humans and animals. So zoonotic um, infections are likely to increase. COVID-19 is just the latest example. Monkeypox is, 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 a, is another one, but that's going to increase going into the future. The second thing is that prevention is better than cure. I think that's one of the big lessons from COVID-19. So vaccines are going to have a much bigger role to play going forwards um, as governments encourage their population to prevent rather than to have to deal with yet another pandemic. The next thing is uh, surveillance, uh, and this is a huge amount of work that happens in the background that many people are not really familiar with. So on an ongoing basis, there's always um, a lot of surveillance for new diseases, new variants, or deadly forms of existing diseases. And that requires a lot of work um, in the background. Now, I've mentioned Thermo Fisher Scientific and Danaha. They are very, very important for that, uh, for that role in terms of pandemic preparedness. But you also have next generation sequencing companies, uh, companies such as Roche, uh, such as Illumina. Um, these uh, provide the tools that are required to, um, to, to work out whether a new infection or virus is, is going to be a problem or not, because they can rapidly sequence uh, some of these um, uh, DNA viruses and RNA viruses. In fact, one of the biggest wins that we had with COVID-19 was that the, the virus was able to be sequenced within days. And that meant that, you know, uh, the response could actually be engineered very, very early on in the pandemic. Otherwise, the fallout would have been much worse. You said something there. I think it was prevention is better than the cure. And my mind harks back to a few years ago when I saw a Goldman Sachs re research report that said something along the lines of, it asked the question, is curing patients a sustainable business model? So I want to ask, when you say prevention is better than cure, are you asking that, are you saying that for business reasons or are you saying that for anthropological reasons? Uh, for both reasons, actually. Um, I think um, one is an interesting Thing that one of the biggest um, problems we see happening globally uh, in, in a, a pandemic that is under the radar really is obesity. Uh, because obesity results in so many problems, you know, diabetes, uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, chronic illnesses, you know, joint pains and, you know, issues on the, on the, um, on the joints and as, as well as um, the burden to society that it brings. Uh, if someone's got a chronic illness, it's got a massive impact in terms of people need to to, to be cared for. Um, and then on the environmental side, it's got a massive increase in environmental footprint as well, because if you've got a chronic condition, all of a sudden you now need to go to the hospital regularly, and that's going to take, you know, um, trips to the hospital, that's, that's going to add to your carbon footprint, it's going to take capacity out of the hospital, etc. So obesity is really one of those biggest issues that we see. And if we could prevent obesity, 
you know, that would save society in terms of economics, in terms of the environment, and in terms of just the social capital that it takes out. You know, you don't need to care for as many people uh, and we reduce the chronic burden of disease. In fact, the biggest um, cost to healthcare is caring for patients with chronic diseases. And so if we can prevent a lot of these chronic diseases, we're going to have many, many multiple wins. And... On a similar note, I think it's probably fair to say there's a lot of popular concern around the relationship between investment and healthcare. So to what extent do you look at how a company treats their customers and what role does that idea play whenever you're talking to companies and in your analysis? Now that plays a massive role. I, I think we have been, like many other investors, been on a journey uh, when it comes to thinking about wider societal impact beyond just the economics. Um, we, For a few years, we've been integrating ESG, environmental, social and governance factors into our process. But since COVID, we have really moved on to this whole idea of sustainability. We want to invest in companies that have got a positive impact on society. And so the idea really comes down to what is called the triple bottom line. Uh, is a company addressing people, the planet, as well as profits. So it's not just about profits, but it's, it's encompassing on, on, on all, all, all of them. And what we do is we engage with companies to make sure that they are addressing the triple bottom line. We encourage companies by sharing best practice uh, across the industry. And in our analysis, we also incorporate, you know, the risks that, you know, they might have from any of these ESG factors. A good example being uh, carbon. If, for example, companies start to have to pay for their scope three emissions, you know, what is the economic impact on that. If companies have to pay for their impact on nature, what is the economic impact on that? And by economic impact, I'm talking really about impact on cash flows, impact on margins, ergo, the impact on the intrinsic valuation. And so what we're doing now is we are incorporating all that in our analysis and in our thinking. And when we are building portfolios for our clients, we're trying to make sure that their wealth is actually making a positive contribution to society. And within that triple bottom line idea, so you've got people and you've got profits, is there a conflict there in the sense that if a firm does too much for people, it will affect the profits? And does that make it less investable for you? No, that's, that's an interesting point. And I think for many things in life, there is a balance to be struck. Um, for what, what, what the, the way we look at it is, if a business is not operating sustainably, if it's not looking after the, its people, then the profits are naturally going to fall away. It will not have that license to operate in society. And what we're encouraging our companies uh, and what we're marking them on and engaging with them on is to say, all your policies, are they taking into consideration the impact that you're having on your people? Because that's got a, a knock-on impact on everything, really. And the license to operate is is being is granted on the basis not just of a regulator who says, yes, we approve your drug or yes, we approve your medical device, but on people who are going to buy that drug. 
another good example would be, you know, the vaccines. We've seen some people prefer one vaccine to another, even though from a scientific perspective they are equivalent. You know, you can't really choose them on the basis of uh, of, of science. But people are, are, are opting to choose one over the other, and that comes down to how people view that company. And so we're encouraging our companies to have a positive impact, a demonstrable positive impact on society, uh, which is then going to mean that, you know, society will give them the license to operate um, and thus ought to have a positive impact on profits. And when it comes to reputational risk beyond the treatment of customers, are there any other things that you look at and keep a keen eye out for? Yeah, re reputational risk is one of the most important for healthcare companies. Um, I have to say the sector is heavily regulated, and so um, it's very hard for these companies to do or to have products that you know don't pass the master. You know, for 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 a vaccine to be approved by the regulators, it has to jump through so many hurdles. When it comes to reputation, it's really about the capital allocation decisions management makes, um, and particularly for the healthcare sector, they had a big awakening at the end of the last decade when to operate in some countries, uh, China was the last example, they had to do a lot of bribes. And so there was a lot of cleansing that happened through the sector. You know, we saw a change in management. We saw a change in, in, in a lot of the C-suite people. Uh, we saw a change in practice. Um, that meant that, you know, that was taken out at that point in time. And I think the sector has learned a lot from that, uh, from that bribery scandal. Uh, and going forward, reputational risk is really one of the most material risks that we look at for, for our companies. And again, it comes back to the license to operate. If you've got a bad reputation, you know, you, you can't really operate. Um, I'll give you another example. AstraZeneca, if you remember with this vaccine, uh, when the reports started to come out that some people are getting blood clots from the vaccine um, and uh, people started taking or at least threatening to refuse to take any AstraZeneca products, we actually called the management in and we said, you know, we know you're doing this on a pro bono basis, something good, we absolutely support it. But the re reputational risk that might come from this might impact the rest of the business. And we are long-term investors. And so we had to walk through how they were dealing with that, uh, with that risk, what they were doing in terms of uh, uh, convincing people, educating people, et cetera, around the vaccine. And in the end, we were quite happy that, you know, they, there wasn't any reputational risk that had any knock-on impact uh, on any of their other profit, uh, products. I do want to do a little bit of sort of scenario analysis, scenario planning. Later this year, I think November, we've got the US midterm elections. Is that something that you're looking at in your kind of scenario analysis? And say hypothetically, if, if the Republican Party takes control of the Senate or the House, what does that mean? A hundred percent. The healthcare sector always goes in waves uh, because it's a, it's, an, it's a political hot potato. Um, healthcare costs in the U.S. are amongst the highest in the, in the G7, in fact, the highest in the world, uh, and yet healthcare outcomes amongst the poorest, amongst the developed nations. And so when it comes to uh, elections, election cycles in the U.S., the healthcare sector often finds itself in its crosses. This year, is meant to be different. It looks like it's going to be different. Um, and that's really for several reasons. Number one is that there are other issues out there, Russia, Ukraine, uh, inflation, supply chain issues, etc. 
that means that attention is split. Uh, you know, um, the the president or the, the different the, the Democrats and the Republicans have to worry about all these other things, uh, and so you know that's taking some attention away from from healthcare. The second reason is that it doesn't look like um, we are going to get. Um, the Republicans taking control of the House. I think they will need seven new senators to come in. And the chances of that happening uh, don't look very promising right now. But even if that were to happen, it still will be a split house. It's not a clear majority where they can push through large pieces of legislation by themselves. And so it is unlikely that we're going to see any major changes uh, in terms of healthcare regulation going forward, and 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 so, what 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 we are base case is is that healthcare is actually not at risk when it comes to yes politics. The final point is that pricing has always been the biggest issue, um, or at least the lowest hanging fruit for politicians. But over the years, we've seen the healthcare sector take a much more prudent approach to pricing. Uh, in the past, it was indiscriminate. You know, you put up the price to whatever people can. Um, but what has happened now is that we've evolved in terms of the economic models for pricing. Uh, there's something called value-based pricing, which is you show me the benefit and I'll pay for it. If you fail to show the benefit, then you know I'll, I won't get paid for it. And those kind of models are becoming more and more commonplace uh, in healthcare. And so what you tend to find is that um, most drugs don't actually increase in price. They launch at the highest price and then every single year uh, it's kind of coming down naturally. In this year where there's a high inflation rate, the prices have tended to remain around the same. So on a real basis, so after inflation, the prices are coming down. But on a nominal basis, the prices aren't going up. So it's, it's not an easy argument for politicians to make to say that pharmaceutical companies are price gouging because there really isn't any evidence for that. And outside of politicians in the US midterm elections, are there any other scenarios or forks in the road that you've got your eye on coming up? Um, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest determinant of value in the sector is really in the innovation pipelines. Um, and I think that's where we have our edge. Um, if you look at the pipelines, particularly for the large cap pharmaceutical names, the key date is really 2025. That's where a lot of drugs uh, or medicines are going to lose their patents. So effectively, the patent cliff for the sector is around 2025. Now, if you look at the companies that are most exposed, you know, there'll be companies like AbbVie, like GlaxoSmithKline, and then the companies least exposed would be companies like Sanofi, AstraZeneca, Roche. So we tend to be more favoring the lower exposed companies in terms of uh, the patent expires. But that's just one leg of the analysis. The other is how strong the pipeline is. And the way we look at the pipelines is both on the breadth, so how many products you have in development, um, but also the quality, you know, across how many different disease mortalities we're looking at. Um, and so we tend to favor the companies that have got the strongest pipelines, which means that, you know, if inflation keeps going higher, they will be able to continue to innovate. And as long as you innovate, you can price your products at a much higher uh, level. And so you can kind of deal with inflation, you can deal with any other challenges that might come, whether it's an economic slowdown or, you know, changes in regula regula regulations or indeed, you know, if we are wrong on the politics side of things. 
And I do want to talk, just before we finish, I do want to talk a little bit about funds, which yeah. we love to do here at CityWire. Are there any particular fund strategies that, that you or the Investec Wealth and Investment are quite bullish on at the moment? Yeah, so at Investec, we uh, use funds for two main reasons. One is to gain exposure to some of the Gem Tomorrow stories, the small biotech companies where we aren't willing to take a binary risk on the outcome of a particular drug. Um, and so is the approach we take is one of a portfolio-based approach. So, you know, we want a basket of these companies. Um, and so funds lend themselves very, very well to that kind of approach. The second one uh, is we use them where we want a basket of uh, healthcare companies uh, for some of our smaller clients where they aren't able to, uh, to take the risk of single stock equities. So with that in mind, uh, on the uh, typical, um, we want a lot more companies for our smaller portfolios. Um, worldwide healthcare still stands out very well. And we like it for three reasons. Number one is that they've got a very strong uh, bench of uh, scientists um, and uh, uh, professionals who, um, who have got a lot of scientific experience and knowledge, uh, a lot of PhDs on that team. So we think they know what they're doing. The second reason is they've got a very pretty strong track record of picking the winners. Now, you know, picking winners in healthcare is, is no easy task uh, because you're really looking at scientific experiments and the whole point of doing these scientific experiments is to find the answer. If you knew the answer, you wouldn't do the experiment. So trying to pick the winners is very, very hard. In worldwide healthcare, I've, I've got a very strong track record of that. And then thirdly is the valuation. Um, the, the fund has really suffered uh, as, as the biotech sector in general uh, because it's really been lumped with those long duration assets uh, that have underperformed, you know, uh, since since uh, Q3 of last year. So we, we like worldwide healthcare. On the biotech side of things, we quite like Polar Capital uh, Biotech uh, Trust, you know, and we like it for similar reasons as well. They've got uh, a good team, well-resourced. They seem to know what they're doing, got a good track record. Uh, but also like it because it kind of diversifies our single stock uh, uh, equity portfolio. So what we hold in terms of single stock names as, as companies is very different to what they're holding on the small cap biotech one product type companies. So you put the two things together, then that diversifies away your risk uh, and, and that helps us navigate you know, the portfolios of our clients during these volatile times. And same question, but for stock picks, which are your favorites right now and why? Yeah, I mean, that's that's always uh, an interesting question. Um, I, I'd say uh, on the pharma side of things, we quite like AstraZeneca. Uh, AstraZeneca right now has got a very strong pipeline. So if you look at the number of products they've got in development, whether it's early stage or middle stage of development, phase two, uh, phase one, phase two development, or even late stage development, they've got many, many products there. And then you look at the modality of treatments they are looking at. Uh, they are quite big in terms of respiratory medicines, um, immunology medicines, uh, as well as cancer medicines. And those are just three that I've mentioned. They've got diabetes products as well and products for other diseases. Um, so you bring all those things together and you say it's got a very strong pipeline. It is growing very quickly. It's one of the fastest growing pharmaceutical companies we have 
uh, in the sector and the valuation is is okay uh, i appreciate the shares have done extremely well um but you know it's still paying a nice healthy dividend yield so astrazeneca really stands out on the medical devices side, we quite like Thermo Fisher Scientific. Um, I talked about pandemic preparedness and life sciences research. Uh, Thermo Fisher Scientific really sits well on that. And the, the way we like to look at it is, is the Amazon of the life sciences uh, healthcare research uh, division. So if you are a, a researcher and you are looking for a particular tool, uh, um, or a particular consumable, you know, then all you need to do is just go to the Thermo Fisher catalog similar to Amazon, and you'll get it it'll get delivered. And once it's specified into the research paper and into the product life cycle, it stays there for the whole of the product life cycle. Um, so it's got a very sticky business. It's growing very well. It did very well during COVID-19 from the diagnostics business, and it's reinvested that capital very, very well. So um, we think Thermo Fisher is really good. Um, the shares have underperformed because it's on the growth bucket, um, but we think that provides an interesting uh, opportunity. And then perhaps the last left field example would be uh, intuitive surgical. And intuitive surgical is really an example of how we think thematically. So intuitive surgical uh, is a business that uh, uses surgical robots uh, to treat uh, to treat uh, uh, issues, uh, so for for many operations. But this is not this, the robot operating on itself. It's not you know an independent robot. It's surgical assisted robot. So there's still a human being who's operating the robot, and it has been shown that you know it increases efficiency because it can do it much quicker, much quicker is much more precise, so you, you get smaller wounds um, or you can do pinhole-type surgery. Uh, and then you get consistent outcomes because you're, you're planning the surgery and you're doing it, the same operation on many different people. Um, and to deal with the backlog that was created by COVID-19, uh, as well as you know the, the lack of surgical personnel to be able to do this hospital capacity, we are certainly going to need an intuitive surgical-type business to be able to help clear that. The other thing is always cost um, because, you know, they, they tend to do operations with more precision. It means there are fewer complications. Patients stay l shorter in hospital and that saves on hospital costs. Uh, up, uh, bring, um, uh, opens up capacity in hospitals. And it means that, you know, the healthcare professionals are also quite happy because their patients are doing well and they are going home much earlier. Uh, intuitive Surgical is, is really at the beginning of its investment cycle. Current penetration for surgical robots is around 5% of all surgeries and is mainly in the United States. So it's yet to scratch the surface everywhere else in the world. So we think that is a really interesting long-term play. Awesome. We'll leave it there, Jimmy. Firstly, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you to those who have tuned in. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.